Hello, welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Will Davis, with cheeks like roses and nose like a cherry. And I'm Leah Richards, three flying reindeer in a trench coat. And you join us this week for what would be a festive Eureka Nerd roundup, except it seems that all the festive scientists have gone on holiday early, so all we've got left is the actual stories to report. I mean, it's a shame, but also you get bored of tinsel quite quickly. So let's just get on right with the science, starting with a chemistry story, which is something new across our shores, at least. A truly groundbreaking chemistry story. It's a development that has only been made possible by someone completely ignoring the accepted knowledge in the field. When you've got someone going against 60, 70 years of received knowledge to say, actually, I'm going to do something a little bit different, Dr. Yang Zhang, who's doing his research at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, has really broken new ground with his research, which could see oil and gasoline transported across country 30 times faster by making it more fluid. It was thought that this wasn't possible because of a a widely accepted theory formed in the late 40s which predicted that all alkanes, that's a particular sort of organic molecule which uh, makes up a lot of uh, products from crude oil, a lot of petrol and that sort of thing, this theory predicted that all alkanes have a universal viscosity near their melting points, so at the point where they're ceasing to be solid and are transitioning to a liquid state, they're all as runny as each other. Until. Until. It turns out that by rearranging the carbon atoms that go into their particular backbone, changing one carbon atom in the backbone of an alkane molecule has enabled Dr. Zhang to make it flow 30 times faster. That just this one little atomic flip of a switch, basically, has made it runnier than ever thought possible based on what apparently the classical kautzmann airing theory of molecular viscous flow has been cited over 3,000 times and has formed most of the understanding for how to treat oils in transport, which, understandably, is quite big business. And the other thing about this is this discovery has been made possible by some brand new technology, a super high speed and super high resolution it's it's called a camera it's it's more a, an electron microscope only it's using neutrons so you get that higher resolution and you get that higher speed so that they can take the pictures and discover this and I love the offhand nature in which this press release describes the high flux neutron sources at the National Institute of Standards and Technology which is just the most scientific phrase I have heard in probably years. It sounds like it ought to be straight out of an Asimov novel. That or strapped to the back of a DeLorean. Both? Maybe. Why not? And by using these, inverted commas, video cameras, they can make use of neutrons to take in movies of the molecules moving over a nanometer, which is one billionth of a meter, at one trillionth of a second. Which is pretty small and pretty fast. I mean, it seems to be about the smallest and fastest we've yet managed, so... That's what she said. (laughs) like they say this could make transporting oil much much easier if all you're doing is flipping an atom of course there are lots of atoms in just one alkane and doing that across you know a whole liter of oil let alone the gallons and gallons and gallons which you'd need to transport or fill a car with but still a bit more chemistry than i can really wrap my head around of course that could just be because i played football when i was younger and have done myself what seems to be a permanent damage. 
It's become a bit of a theme in recent years, discussing the effect of head injuries in sport. There's a whole Will Smith film about it. And this study from the University of Stirling have looked into the impact of heading a football. In this case, immediately after a, a routine heading practice. And they've discovered that there are small but significant changes in brain function immediately resulting from these exercises. So they got a group of football players to head a ball 20 times, and the balls were launched from a machine designed to simulate pace and power of a corner kick, so they had a consistency there. It wasn't one guy just getting walloped in the corner. But by heading the ball 20 times, then they pop in for a quick test of brain function and memory. Apparently, performance is reduced by 41 to 67%. Normalising again after 24 hours. Yeah, the effect seems to wear off a little after... 24 hours but you can see how over many many years of doing this regularly you know if you're a professional you're training several days a week for many hours and that effect is going to accumulate this follows on from the obvious head injury coming from combat sports like boxing the head-on collisions of american football and rugby which have long been known to just rattle your brains in a somewhat irreparable way Yes, there is a habit among former rugby players, American football players and boxers of developing significant dementia in later life, which has frequently been blamed on being repeatedly hit in the head. I'm no scientist, but that seems like a pretty good idea. You are literally a scientist. I am exactly a scientist. We should probably move on to safer territory then, and where safer than in the arms of a swan? Oh yes, absolutely, the arms of a, an angry irate bird that could break your limbs incredibly territorial property of the queen and also windsurfing I'm quite surprised that this hasn't been sort of officially scientifically recorded before it has been recorded that birds can fly and swim and walk I like how they state that at the start of the press just in case you'd missed that I mean define a bird Probably the first thing you go to is the flying, because we look up with envy to the skies and curse their name. And birds that can't fly are usually very, very good on their legs or very, very good in the water. Not usually both at once, interestingly. But here we have a whole new skill set for the avian community, or the swans at least. Or a newly recorded swan. A newly recorded skill set, at least. I assume that swans have been doing this for as long as they've been swans and possibly before. I wonder if this is where it all comes from. People were looking at swans sailing gracefully through the water and thinking, oh, if only I could do that. But I don't have wings, and I don't have long enough legs to reach the bottom, so I'm going to have to strap a great big sail to a surfboard and have at it. Yes, essentially, the mute swans, which are... Your typical swan. Which are, yeah, they, they, they are the usual swan. At least where we are. They will use their wings to catch the wind in order to travel much, much faster than they could manage by paddling and spectacularly lower energy cost. And energy is important in the natural world. You don't know where the next meal is coming from, especially in the frozen north of Sweden, which is where this research was conducted. At the Department of Ecology at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences and windsurfing swans, apparently, have been sighted in 1999, 
2014 and 2015 at three different locations in Sweden, which makes me wonder what were they doing for the 15 years between 1999 and 2014? Had it just become too passe by then? As the X Games were taking off, they thought, oh, oh no, we don't want that kind of attention. They just weren't looking. Someone went, this one appears to be windsurfing, and no one took any notice of that. If they had, it would have been immediately established that this is a thing they do. Then why didn't the first guy in 1999 point at the swan and go, look, it's doing it? Why did it have to take another 17 years to reach this kind of scientific consensus that, okay, we get it. Swans are rad as heck. I mean, possibly it's that everyone involved took one look at the swans and went, nah, they're bastards, I'm not going near them. And I do make a note that the meat swan can start moving immediately when windsurfing towards a flying takeoff. And, quote, they move quickly. Approximately two swan lengths per second. Which is, say, 1.3 metres. And we've had discussions about inappropriate units of measurement before. And I'm going to bring swan lengths to the fore. I think when you're talking about swans, a swan length is a perfectly reasonable unit of measurement. If you were describing, for example, the size of your car or the length of a swimming pool in swan lengths, then I would think you were a lunatic. I'm slightly less than three swans tall. <laughs> I would just like to say that this story goes out to a fan and a friend of ours who you can find on Tumblr, elodieunderglass.tumblr.com. Who describes herself as the democratically elected swan princess and has been involved in discussions about why swans think kayaks are rude. If you want more waterfowl knowledge, she's a pretty good place to start. Back to the somewhat more sensitive nature of brains and internal health. Apparently they're more active when you're inhaling. That's what the story is. I thought we were still talking about swans. <laughs> this comes from a press release from Northwestern University with the subtitle of Breathing is not just for oxygen. It's now linked to brain function and behaviour. I mean, probably because of oxygen. I feel like those things are linked. I go so far as to say that breathing is almost entirely for oxygen, which then enables the rest Every of... other function that yeah. our body does. Mm. So in this study, led by Christina Solano, who is Assistant Professor of Neurology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, individuals were able to identify a fearful face, someone looking scared at them, if they encountered the face when breathing in, as opposed to when breathing out, which means just by the process of breathing in, they're able to more quickly process visual input and relate it to experience and memory and perceived emotion. And accordingly, they were more likely to remember an object if they were introduced to it while they were inhaling rather than exhaling. And this effect completely disappeared if they were breathing through the mouth rather than the nose. Maybe it's just the passage of oxygen that close to the bottom of the brain. There's some kind of instant uptake there. I know the mouth isn't that far from the nose at that point, is it? I mean, all the tubes are connected, so who knows? The body is a series of tubes. It's a lot like the internet. But it contains less cats. Ideally. <laughs> now, these effects were first observed when studying patients with epilepsy who were scheduled for brain surgery at the Northwestern University. A week prior to surgery, electrodes implanted in the patient's brains, which were 
that uh, try and identify the origin of seizures allowed scientists to observe and measure electrophysiological data directly from the brains, and they found that that activity changed as the patients breathed in and breathed out, and this action was most notable in the brain centres for emotion, memory, and, well, also smell. And possibly this is why the effect changes when you're breathing through your mouth. It's it's entirely possible that it is somehow smell-linked. If you can inhale, say, the smell of a pan of mulled wine and go, oh my god, it smells of Christmas, or you catch a waft of the perfume your nan used to wear and are immediately transported back, it makes sense that there might be a link between breathing and memory. Smell is one of those just most evocative of senses. Because, because it's one of the oldest ones. So we're just going to cut ahead to a quote from Zelano here at the end, that if you are in a panic state, your breathing rhythm becomes faster, and you'll spend proportionally more time inhaling than when in a calm state. Thus, our body's innate response to fear with fast breathing could have a positive impact on brain function and fast response times to dangerous stimuli in the environment. And Dr. Zelano does note what this could mean for meditation, the pattern of rhythmic breathing to clear one's senses, to clear one's mind, could be, uh, yeah, there's a synchronising of brain and body and limbic networks going on there. But swinging away from brains, a new molecular method has been developed to detect parasites in ham that cause toxoplasmosis. This is one of those exciting brain parasites that, that gets in your brain and modifies your behaviour from inside your own head. Or worse yet, from inside your own ham. And you've probably heard of Toxoplasmosis gondii, that one thing that, you know, cats get from mice and keeps cycling around in them and that 50% of people have, apparently, and it's linked to road rage. And, oh, it does all kinds of weird stuff in your head because parasitology is a fascinating and terrifying field of research. But they do highlight that within people it can cause malformation and deficiencies in newborns, which includes microcephaly, hydrocephaly, blindness, congenital heart disease, and is also one of the most opportunistic parasites in immunosuppressed people as well. And using this new molecular method, scientists from the University of Grenada and Valencia have been able to detect Toxoplasmosa gondii samples in 475 commercial samples of ham, and they note, both sliced and in cubes. And this technique, which as they say, is molecular, involves capturing the parasite's DNA by using magnetic particles essentially programmed to pick up specific sequences of the DNA, which they can then process to amplify it so that it's detectable by more traditional means. This technique can detect a single parasite cell in 100 grams of ham at an efficiency of 94.6%. I mean, that's, that's pretty effective. And this follows from previous research that we've reported about using techniques to identify the salt content of ham. And the researchers do note that ham industry producers can ensure complete removal of the toxoplasmosis by freezing the pieces of meat before salting it or after the curing period. It's also important to note that actually the most traditional methods of salting meat to produce the ham, to cure it, is actually very effective for completely eradicating these parasites and the probably one of the issues with a lot of these commercial samples is that they're using uh, nitrite as well as salt to do their curing and that is not as effective at destroying the toxoplasma. In fact they outright say that 
curing ham using nitrites along with sea salt increases toxoplasma survival time, which you do not want in your ham nor in you. This is one of those things in food production where it's sometimes there's a good reason why the traditional techniques are used. Sometimes it's not just this is what we can do. Sometimes it's a it's actually the most effective way of doing something. But from old techniques being useful, we get on to new techniques. Very modern. Very, very modern indeed. In fact, only really feasible within the last year. In fact, if you were to say what I'm about to say to someone even ten years ago, they'd lock you away. I think you were talking about some bizarre thing out of a fantasy novel, out of a, out of a horror movie. And whilst usually I am, this one is science. <coughs> The Blood Drones are coming. Call for the Blood Drones. The Blood Drones are here. Watch for the Blood Drones. Blood Drones. Blood. Blood Drones. Yes, drones, unmanned aerial vehicles, remotely piloted by someone on the ground using either direct line of sight or GPS mapping services can effectively and efficiently transport blood products, reducing the need for... You get your bike paramedics wheeling out with blood, you get fans, and they just don't have the same uh, speed access as a little box on a little robot bird flapping around while buzzing with its helicopter blades and delivering blood to where it's needed most. And most importantly, carrying the blood by drone doesn't have any significant impact on the quality of the blood product because you would worry that if it's wheeling about overhead, there'd be some kind of settling, almost like a very slow centrifuge. Sloshing. It might damage the red blood cells. There's elevation going up and down. The pressure could do something, the temperature, but no. Properly stored blood in a nice little cool box, strapped to the bottom of a robot helicopter, can be whisked away into the skies and shoved right into someone with no ill effects. If handled by, you know, actual medical professionals who haven't recently been playing football. Now, it's worth noting that this is just a first proof-of-concept study from John Hopkins. The author, Timothy Amokaley, is not signing off on everyone just getting your drones out and zipping around with a blood bag dripping all over the streets. But they say that for rural areas that lack access to nearby clinics or the infrastructure, or especially for emergency situations, blood drones could be... The next big thing. And while obviously they're not signing off on it yet, it was a relatively small study. They did fly each drone for 8 to 12 miles, about 100 feet above the ground. Uh, this is a flight which took about half an hour, so they're, they're probably travelling around about 20 miles an hour through the air with a box of blood. So it seems to be fairly sound, and indeed, Awakele says, My vision is that in the future, when a first responder arrives to the scene of an accident... They can test the victim's blood type right there and send for a drone to bring the correct blood product. Hail the blood drone. Hail. Hail. Call down the blood drone. This blood is for you. Between this and the artificial blood cells, which we recently tweeted about, you can find in our Twitter, at Eureka Nerdcast. Everything is going super well for vampires right now. And now to a study which I cannot explain because the article is 
It's it's not a good press release. I mean, it opens with just the the verbs yelling, screaming, slamming of doors, sneaking out. So this is a study about uh, parenting tactics and how those can affect problem behaviour in teenagers. Which, okay, fine. There's probably some interesting psychology to investigate in, in that. There's a lot of reason to, because there's an awful lot of people all over the world who, as soon as the kids start getting all, like, pubescent and hormonal, just have endless trouble getting them to behave like human beings. And teenager years are a tough one. Really, it's a wonder that anyone survives. But whilst it should make no news to anyone that, you know, good behaviour around your kids is a good model and that aggressive behaviour around the kids is going to amplify and result in aggressive behaviour from them, this one is just... I mean... I'm genuinely not sure what they've discovered here. They are talking about perception, they are talking about how teens view their parents' parenting techniques and how parents view their parenting techniques. And, I mean, I think the worst thing... It's, it reads as though chunks of it have just been copied and pasted from the study without any effort to make it accessible. And this is the reason why scientists and science journalists have got a shaky relationship. Because they don't listen to each other, they don't take care to make sure they're preserving, you know, meaning when they're paraphrasing things. So you end up with paragraphs like... The study also highlights the importance of adolescence evaluation on how mothers and fathers handle their difficult behaviours. Mother's perception of her response to her teenager's anger was significantly correlated with externalising behaviour but not with aggressive behaviours. Father's perception of his response to his teenager's anger was significantly correlated with externalising behaviours and with aggressive behaviours. So what is an externalising behaviour? This has not been explained. Whose aggressive or externalising behaviours are we talking about? The parents or the teenagers? How is this being evaluated? Who's perceiving which behaviour at which time? It seems like there's three different viewpoints and a couple of different time points all being jammed into the one sentence. So, yeah, broadly speaking, it doesn't make sense. I don't know what this study has actually discovered... I really can't be bothered to try and tease out what this study has actually discovered because this is peppered with so much unnecessary jargon. But in summary, like, be empathetic to your children. You were a kid once. Just be nice. Well, no, that's the, that's the trouble. Is I can't say for sure that that is what this study has discovered. I can't make any... I would not make any statement about what this study, what impact this study should have on how you parent, because this article is, this this press release about the study is so badly written that I can't make sense of it. Well, hopefully it's not saying be a dick to your kids, because I would have ethical reasons to dispute that. The point of bringing this up, though, is, you know, A, so that I can have a rant, and B, so that I can tell you all, from my perspective as someone with journalism training that this is not how you write a science story I mean it is how people write science stories but it doesn't have to be but it shouldn't be what things mean is important it's important 
as a communicator to make these things accessible. And we're doing what we can, but help us out here, guys. Well, in the same good-spirited help-us-out-here attitude, we can move on to general practice strategies. You know, going to see a GP in your local doctor's surgery. And how your GP manages your conditions when you go to visit them. Is directly linked to the risk of hospital admission. This is a study done very locally to us at the University of Bristol. You know, Bristol is as good a city as any to study something like this because they have looked into the impact of economic inequality in context of this. And we are a city that has some super fancy parts and some parts which are not. Are very not. But there's doctor surgeries across all of them. There's central and out-of-the-centre hospitals. And this survey was looking at admission rates between 8,000 general practices all across England and 1.8 million admissions. These are mostly looking at what are technically called ambulatory care-sensitive conditions. Which I'd like to clarify literally means walking wounded. Yes, and I w- this is what I'd probably call in you know, a more normal conversation a chronic illness. So we're looking at things like diabetes, alcoholism, asthma, dementia, schizophrenia and hypertension are also mentioned. A lived condition then, something that isn't going to be fixed overnight with just a plaster on it. Yes, something that is ongoing, often congenital or permanent. But something that will have you back in the GPs on the rig. This is something I've discussed just sort of in general before. I've both of my siblings suffer with asthma and eczema most of these chronic conditions are the sort of things which most of your care is kind of left to you you're sort of given maybe a prescription maybe some instructions of how to administer that to yourself and then pretty much left to it until you hit a sort of a crisis point and understandably good care is going to ensure that you have i mean obviously long-term health conditions can't be avoided with these kinds of things but also that you don't have sudden flare-ups requiring hospitalisation. And Dr John Busby, lead author of this study, says that admission rates for some of the conditions in this study, including alcoholism, schizophrenia and diabetes, are over three times higher from some practices than from others, which raises questions about why the differences exist and how to standardise care. And some of this is going to involve providing more support to GPs to enable them to provide better care for these groups. And also improving GP communications and engagement with their community, because if you're new in town, someone walks in with a condition they've had for 10 years and the last guy has been looking after for all of that time, and you look at it for the first time and think, cool, blimey, your foot's about to fall off, hop in the ambulance, we'll take you right away. Someone has been dropping the ball a touch. Or... You could get to know the person and say, oh, you've got long-term diabetes, but you're managing it. Maybe we could help manage that better and keep you that foot. In fact, to quote Dr. Busby directly, our research suggests that differences in the way GP care is delivered across England could have an important impact on patient health. This could include suboptimal management of chronic disease, which puts patients at higher risk of admission into hospital, but also overly cautious referrals to hospital or a lack of alternatives to treat patients in the community. I mean, it's safe to say that both of us 
are not conservative in our outlook on life. We uh, you won't see us campaigning with a blue rosette any time, that's for sure. But it's nice to have science on our side to say that a properly funded national health system is essential, not just for hospitals, but for doctors, for patients, for entire communities and the nation as a whole. Not just in the short term, but for managing lifelong illnesses and forwards into the future for geriatric care and all that comes with it. And there are, accordingly, already follow-ups planned for this research. The intention is to explore why such large variations exist between practices for some conditions and what of those reasons could be used and how and how that information could be used to help improve care. I mean, I'd suggest for a start that if you've got more poorer people coming into your surgery than richer ones, that's probably going to make a difference somewhere along the line because being poor seems to affect, make everything worse, really. Especially if you're looking at low-income wards, which are typically associated with lower housing costs, or at least lower renting costs, so then you get increased levels of population density, as opposed to huge areas of even Bristol, where there are lots of houses, very fancy houses, that no one can afford, that no one lives in. So just the sheer number of people within that doctor's catchment area, it's just just lower. And there are also follow-up investigations to assess what characteristics of a general practice are related to these higher or lower admission rates. So some of the factors they're looking at are the distance to the nearest A&E, how easy it is to see a GP, how often patients can see the preferred GP, and how many hospital beds are available in the local area. So, and again from Dr. Busby, we have, it will be interesting to see if the importance of each of these factors differs by condition. The way in which primary care is delivered is evolving rapidly, and it is important that these changes are informed by good quality evidence. So best of luck in your work, Dr. Busby. I'm interested to see what comes of it. And now we have time for one final glance toward the future as well, not just for healthcare, but for, well, I suppose it's a nice middle ground between human healthcare and the blood drones. It may be possible to give robots a more human sense of touch by making them hairy. Makes you wonder why they shaved off Arnold Schwarzenegger's eyebrows in the first Terminator film. Because oh, they hadn't seen this research yet, obviously. Clearly, they hadn't read this uh, paper from the ACS Applied Materials Interfaces, in which devices advancing on electronic skin prototypes, which already were thin films sensing temperature, pressure, blood oxygen, and alcohol levels, are now being engrafted with, well, hair. It's kind of like a prosthetic for just above your skin in that an array of artificial hairs with glass-coated, cobalt-based micro-wires are embedded in the ends of wires in silicon rubber skin, and this hairy skin could detect a range of pressures from as light as the landing of a fly to a light wind to a 10-pound weight. And when used with a two-finger robot gripping a plastic block, this new sensor could feel the slip and friction of the non-copyright Lego block. One of the inspirations for this, obviously, is that as mammals, humans are quite hairy, and the presence of that hair does allow us to feel things like a light breeze, or if you're a cat, to judge whether you can fit yourself through that hole. There's a whole system of proprioception built into it, extending not just within the reach of your body, but far beyond as well. And adding that to robots, like they say, improving the grip, understanding the force and the weight of something, 
It opens up an interesting path for future research. And an interesting path for future robots. I'm quite looking forward to seeing fuzzy androids around and about. I'm expecting it to just be kind of like a peach fuzz, just a a soft halo of cobalt glass hair. Yeah, a lot like that. And maybe in the distant future, when you have your brain uploaded into the robot god body you intend to own, it can be as hairy as the one you've grown yourself. Maybe just a tasteful patch of uh, chest hair. A tasteful patch of beard. I mean, that's just essential, really. How else are you going to know it's me atop this Megas XLR? That's a very good point. You are, broadly speaking, unrecognisable without the beard. But before we slip away for Christmas, and all of the beards that come with it, be they paper, white and shiny, or just the ones you accumulate from not having to go out in public for two weeks, then maybe it's time to... A few stories that we didn't get to cover, but maybe you can read up on in your own time, such as... Parents, listen up. Children keep still during prayer. Presumably that hell thing has gotten quite spooked. Or possibly it just it's just working as a form of meditation. Breathing, as mentioned earlier. And the, frankly, stellar title of Frankfurter Fraud. Finding out what's in your hot dog. After the horsey Findus lasagna thing, it's... It's important to people to know what's in their food. And now they can know just how much toxoplasmosis as well. But I think that's all we've got time for. So if you want to get in touch over the Christmas break, you can find us over at Twitter, that's at Eureka Nerdcast, or send us an email to Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. That's Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you again in 2017. Goodbye. Are very useful in transporting blood. <laughs> transporting blood. 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 <laughs> blood. 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 For me. <laughs> I, want I want to, to suck your blood, drone. <laughs> Is that like vampires ordering takeout? <laughs>